Branding is not a logo, a font, or a collection of colors on your website. Your brand is, at least one way to look at it, is your reputation. It is how you are known and perceived in the world. And a good reputation is more valuable than rubies. But how do you develop that good reputation? Or put another way, how do you develop a brand that stands out from the crowd and also sells books? That is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And this episode is for everyone, indie and traditional, published and unpublished, fiction and nonfiction. Unless you're exclusively a ghostwriter, this episode is for you. And we have a special guest on the show today who's a brand coach and co-founder and CEO of the Leverage Creative Group. He works with authors like Jerry Jenkins to help them get their content into the hands of those who need it. David Loy, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Hey, Thomas, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. And I love hearing the passion that you have for helping authors. And I'm excited to chip in, to be a part of the conversation. Now, I should ask before we get started, it's 2022. Are author brands still a thing? Can't we just buy a bunch of Facebook ads and ignore branding? <laughs> oh, man, wouldn't that be great? I think we do still need branding, unfortunately. Whether you like it or not, I do think it's still necessary, but it doesn't have to be a necessary evil I mean, you have a brand, whether you want one or not. The real question is, who do you want creating your brand? Do you want to do it on purpose or do you want to do it by accident? Do you want to have a dozen different brands by your readers explaining you in a dozen different ways? Or do you want something cohesive? Because often people accidentally build a really convoluted brand that makes it really hard for the readers to talk about them and it torpedoes their word of mouth. You're creating it whether you want to or not. And really, whether you're being intentional or not, you're already creating it. So why not go ahead and be intentional, bring in some strategy to be it as productive as possible. So for somebody just starting out, how do they choose what they want to be known for? Where do you start building a brand? There's not a one size fits all starting point for everybody. But there are a few questions that I would ask if I were in those shoes. If you're starting out, I would say, who's the audience that I'm trying to reach? Where are those people hanging out? Am I one of my potential audience? And if so, where do I hang out? What are the forums? What are the places that I enjoy spending time, that I enjoy engaging others? Where do I want to spend my time? What platforms do I enjoy engaging on? I would ask a few of those questions. And I was going to say that answer, Thomas, that I feel like has become cliche almost. But Simon Sinek really made it popular when he said, start with why. If you haven't defined your why clearly, then you need to do that right now, not just because you need clarity, but because the answer to that's going to tell you what to do to go build a brand. Yeah, your why is your motivation. It's what gets you up and keeps you going during the hard parts of the writing journey. And if you don't have a strong why, you give up at the first challenge or you give up at the first rejection. But if you have a strong why, you keep going. And the why also helps you get started with the who, because the who of the brand is really important. I think it's really interesting that when you talked about where to get started with a brand, you don't have somebody staring at their navel trying to figure out who I am. It's about who my audience is. And that's really important. In fact, that takes us to the first commandment of novel marketing, which is love your reader as much as you love your book. And, <laughs> and it really has to come out of loving your reader and knowing who your reader is. If you don't know who your reader is and how they're different from everyone else, you're not writing for the generic 
other, you're writing for a very specific person or a very specific group of people, it informs everything else. And it also helps you thrill them. And it's in that thrilling them that your word of mouth spreads and your reputation grows. (laughs) So more people know who you are. That's exactly right. And for those of you who have heard of Jerry Jenkins, maybe you followed some of his online teaching. I've had the privilege of working with Jerry since 2014. He is famous for saying repeatedly, (laughs) think reader first. When you're writing, he says, think reader first. So Thomas, that goes exactly with commandment number one that you just said. But what I say in terms of a marketing and branding standpoint and approach, what I tell people is, Think visitor first. Think email reader first. Think podcast listener first. YouTube watcher first. Think chat, you know, Discord, Reddit, whatever, uh, chat forum engager first. You are thinking about your audience as you are creating this strategy. And the reason is exactly what you just said. But if you can keep that as your underlying theme and as your starting point, I feel like that can make you get a little bit further down the road a little bit quicker in terms of branding and marketing. That's right. What I recommend for authors that I'm working with is to find their Timothy, find one person who's a representative of the group instead of creating an imaginary friend. So we both come (laughs) from the business world and in business, you create a persona or an avatar, a customer avatar. And in my experience, when you lead an author through that exercise, they are so creative. They create an imaginary friend who loves everything they do. And it ends up being not very useful for making brand decisions. But when you force them to find one real life human being who would actually read their writing, it forces them to crystallize who they're really writing for. And it allows them to get feedback to see if what they're doing is actually resonating with their target audience. It really is true. I've worked with authors now for almost 17 years now in some capacity. And I worked with an author a long time ago who would play a mind game with himself. He would envision his two sons sitting across from his desk and he would envision uh, for, for that specific writing project that he was writing to them. Now, of course, it ended up that he was writing to millions of people who would eventually read that book, but it helped him so much to picture his 14 and 12-year-old sons sitting across from him, conveying that message directly to impact their lives. And it worked for him. So I encourage people to come up with something that will work for you in that same realm. Painting a red dot in the middle of the target really does help you hit the target, right? Even if you're not hitting (laughs) the red dot, having something to aim for is really key. And I think it's even more important the more different you are from your target audience. If you're writing basically for yourself, it's perhaps less useful because you're like, I want the sort of thing that I like to read. But I see that as really risky because you might be weird and you might like it and nobody else likes it. That's the big risk of that approach of writing for yourself. And so I much prefer picking at least one human being that you're writing for, especially if you're writing for a different audience. So if you're writing for a different generation or for a different culture or for a different nation, you really need to spend some time listening before you start talking. Well, that's interesting, Thomas, that you say that, because I don't think this contradicts what you said, but you let me know if you feel that it does. But I have always taught people in terms of branding to start with listening first. Yes, absolutely. But in terms of creating, that it's tougher to listen to an audience in terms of creation than it is in terms of branding. Do you see a distinction there at all? So for somebody just getting started, I would encourage them to read the most successful books in the genre that they're writing in, whether it's a fiction genre or a nonfiction genre, which is a way of listening to the reader, actually. Because if it's a best-selling book, millions of people have voted with their pocketbook saying, this is what I like. 
And if you're not willing to do that, if, if you're not willing to find out what the readers in your genre like, then you're just shooting in the dark and you're hoping that arrow lands on a target and doesn't land on a passerby. <laughs> and so it doesn't mean that you copy that, right? It's not like, oh, I see this successful author. I'm going to do it just to what he's doing it. But it is important to know kind of what ingredients they're cooking with. How are they approaching their d- different issues? What tropes are they using so that you don't copy them by accident, for one, because that's really easy if you're not reading in your genre. You're accidentally copying the tropes because you don't know. Somebody else wrote a book with that exact same plot format. But it also helps you create something unique, but also something that's resonant with a reader. That's great advice. I really like that. I'm learning on this podcast today, too. So thanks for giving that example. That's helpful. Uh, So what are some uh, key ingredients for building a strong personal brand? Authenticity. Probably first and foremost, I feel like there's a lot of pressure in in today's market to try to mimic other people regardless of skill set. And in my opinion, that's just not going to work. So be authentic to who you are and to what skills you bring to the table. And if your skills don't lend themselves to things like YouTube or to things like podcasts, then trying to build a brand that is outside of your skill set is probably not going to work, or at the very least, it's going to be extremely challenging. So I always just try to tell people that you have to be exactly who you are, but you have to find the place online that is a place where you can maximize what your skill set is. And if that means you just focus in on Instagram only or on Facebook only for the first three or six months, that's okay. You can do any of the things that are out there. You cannot do all of the things that are out there. And even if you think you can, you can't do them all at a high level. (laughs) So be authentic is my first key. Yeah, there's a story in the Bible of this young shepherd boy, David, who's going to fight this giant Goliath. So David's there. He's a shepherd boy. He's used to using a sling. And he goes to the king. He's like, I'm willing to fight. I'm willing to be our champion. And the king's like, okay, you can have my armor. I've got the best armor in the army, presumably. He's offering him his sword. And David very wisely stays true to his own brand. Because if he had worn that armor, he wouldn't have known what to do with it. It would have slowed him down and it would have forced him to try to out-Goliath Goliath. And you can't out-Goliath Goliath. He's going to be bigger than you. He's going to be stronger than you. He's been trained as a warrior from his youth. But as David going with no armor and just a sling ends up cheating. Because he's bringing a gun to a sword fight, right? Because <laughs> a sling is able to throw a rock with basically the force of a forty-five caliber gun. And by being true to his own brand, he ends up defeating the champion. And so don't try to be Goliath. Don't take Saul's armor and don't listen to the pressure. Somebody's pressuring you saying you've got to do social media if you want to get published. Don't listen to them. Listen to my episode that said you don't have to. (laughs) If you're great at social media, you can. But if social media for you feels like this big burden and like just the idea of it makes you tired, Let me tell you, you will never be successful. (laughs) You've got to enjoy it a lot and work really hard to be good at any kind of social media if you want to grow a following there. That's such great advice. There are so many things in this journey for an author to build a brand and to get their message out. There's so many things in that process that are difficult. You don't need to intentionally go add more unnecessary, difficult challenges to your plate. So go find some things that you actually do enjoy doing that match your skill set. That's great advice. I, I really like that. Uh, there's an old commercial series for this beer brand, Dos Equis. It was the most interesting man in the world. And they did a series of, of them where he's giving advice. And he said, find the one thing in the world you do not do well, and then don't do that thing. <laughs> 
know, it's so simple, but it's so true. There you it's go. Like, yeah. For a lot of authors, like social media is the one thing in the world you do not do well. Don't do that thing. It's not going to work out for you. So what are some misconceptions that authors have when it comes to building their brands? When you're working with authors, what are the big like falsehoods that you have to break down before you can start working on something useful? I was hosting a session for some of Jerry's audience the other day, and somebody showed up to the webinar and asked, if I were to build a brand through Facebook and through YouTube, wouldn't that take several years? And what guarantee do I have that time will be well spent? And I said, uh, yes, it will take several years, <laughs> potentially. And no, there is no guarantee. <laughs> so if you're looking for either of those things in this process, if you're looking for it to happen overnight, and if you're looking for guaranteed results, then I would say those are misconceptions. I think there's still this temptation when people see what they perceive to be overnight successes pop up on the scene. They automatically think, well, why hasn't that happened for me? When the reality is, and you and I have seen this several times, the reality is that those perceived overnight successes almost always have been a decade in the making. A lot of those people who all of a sudden show up on the scene, they've been at work hard for a long time before they became that perceived overnight success. So I think that's one of the things I, I would try to tell people to watch out for in terms of assumptions. When you're looking for an area to focus your where you get famous, right? So there's having a good brand as opposed to a bad brand, people liking you as opposed to hating you, but there's also how famous you are. There's two metrics. As you look at it, you're looking at your strengths and what you can enjoy. But one of the things I would encourage you, especially if you're early on in your career, you want to find an area where getting good at that thing also is helping you get good as a writer mm. and helping you develop your craft. So a, a classic example of this, if you're writing nonfiction, blogging helps you become a better nonfiction writer. A good blog post and a good section of a book have a lot in common, whereas, say, being on TikTok not as much in common, right? The keys to being good at TikTok, there's a little bit of overlap because you're writing a script, but a lot of TikTok has to do with which song you select and what songs are popular right now and what dance moves to do. And none of that has anything to do with writing. <laughs> so <laughs> look for areas where there's some synergy, where the fame building is connected with the craft development, which is why I really like short story writing for novelists because as you're writing short stories and you're giving them away and you're growing your email list, Short story writing and novel writing are different. But they're not as different as they are, say, from novel writing and TikTok video creation. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's actually something that Jerry teaches as well. But, but Jerry always talks about if you're if you are just starting out in terms of writing, it's going to be really tough to for your first writing project ever to be a novel. It's OK to start with something shorter, something smaller, a little bit more achievable and it is applicable in the branding and, and marketing platform building sense as well. So there's a lot of value in, in heeding that advice for sure. Which takes us to our ninth commandment of book marketing. <laughs> Thou shalt not publish thine first book first. <laughs> so your first book is meant to teach you how to write a book. It's not meant to be published. If you're willing to let those first fruits fall to the ground and fertilize the tree, the tree will be much healthier over the lifetime of the tree and your career will be much better rather than trying to make the zombie come to life of your first book. Can I ask you a question about that? Because that is wise. But do you feel like people resonate? Do they latch on to that? Because inherent with what you just said is a lot of time, potentially a lot of frustration and pain and learning a second book 
is inherent at least second, third, fifth, 20th book before you get to wherever you're trying to go. Do you feel like people can digest that as really something to, to guide themselves in this process? So of the 10 commandments, that is by far the most common one that people say, I'm the exception. That one doesn't <laughs> apply to me. <laughs> and there's a reason why I put it so late in the 10 commandments, because I needed them to agree with me with the earlier commandments. Because if I started off with that one as the first one, first off, it's not the most important commandment. Loving sure. your reader as much as you love your book really is the greatest commandment. But it's interesting because when I talk with authors who are successful, authors who've sold millions of copies of books, they all agree with it 100%. <laughs> so mm. it's only the unpublished authors who push back on that. It is not the career authors. In fact, almost all career authors like, yeah, my, my first book wasn't very good. Or I did a lot of writing that wasn't books first, right? Jerry Jenkins, I interviewed him on my other podcast, and we talked about all of the writing he did as a journalist before he ever started writing a book. And that was key. <laughs> so sure. you get, the metaphor I like to use is when you get in the shower and you turn on the hot water, what comes out? Cold water. And you just got to let the cold water flow. And when you start writing, the first thing that comes out of you is bad writing. And you just got to let the bad writing flow. Eventually, the, it will warm up. Your writing will get better, especially as you read books on craft and you take courses and you get feedback. And then you'll have hot water. And it's that hot water that you should be using to take your shower, not the cold water. Let me add to that. If I'm mad that it's cold water that's coming out and I get so mad that I just shut off the faucet and I don't come back for a week, what am I reasonably going to expect to come out when I turn it on again? It's going to still be cold water. <laughs> so that, that's a really good analogy. You could keep running with that one for a while. It does take persistence. Building a brand takes persistence, just like building reputation. People get really weirded out by this word brand. And the word brand is a new term for a really old concept, which reputation building goes back to the misty past of humanity. Everyone's had a reputation. And that's why pirates flew the black flag, right? Because they were depending on their reputation to cause the merchant ships to surrender. Because it's actually not profitable for a pirate ship to actually fight. It's way cheaper <laughs> for the merchant ship to surrender, right? So they had to build a reputation through atrocities and get the other side to surrender, right? The reputation goes back a really long way. And it can help you with your book if you stay consistent. And another mistake I see authors making, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on this, is that they dabble in a bunch of different genres and they dabble in a bunch of different kinds of writing. And it makes their brand really difficult to articulate because like, well, I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So what are your thoughts on that? The first five years of my career was spent as a booking agent for keynote speakers. And keynote speakers includes a lot of authors, both fiction and nonfiction, but they're experts or great storytellers that get hired to go to corporations and do annual events, those kinds of things. And as a part of that, I worked at a company where we would receive probably 25 to 30 new speakers approaching us every day to represent them to go get booked. And this was the key factor for us to know when we were not going to represent someone, but most of them would lead with some version of this. My content can work in front of anybody. I can speak <laughs> to any audience. I can just put me on stage and I will deliver. 
And that was the red flag for me and for the rest of our company that said, that's not what we need. Because while you believe that, and as an author, while you might believe that, or as a brand builder, you might believe that the reality is that that's not what the audience is looking for. They are looking for authenticity, expertise, personality, personal engagement. They're not looking for one size fits all. They're looking for one size fits me. That's what they want. Yeah, I've seen two different ways to focus your writing that work well. So the most common is I just write this one genre and you get associated with a specific genre and your name means that genre so that Jerry Patterson doesn't even have to write the book anymore. He just has to oversee the writing of the book, but his name is so attached with a very specific kind of book that it sells millions of copies just with his name on it because of his reputation. But there's another approach that I've seen work, and it's the Trisha Goyer approach, because a lot of people are like, yeah, but what about Trisha Goyer? She sold millions of books, and she writes nonfiction, she writes fiction, she writes in all these different genres. She's not following your instructions to focus. And if you look a little bit closer, she is. But her focus isn't a genre focus. It's a micro niche audience focus. Mm. So Trisha Goyer's uh, target audience is homeschool moms. She's a homeschool mom. She's very well known in the homeschool mom world. She speaks at homeschool conventions and everything that she does is either for homeschool moms for them to read or for homeschool moms to buy to have their children read. And so she can have a booth at a homeschool convention. She's got her 70 books across all of her different genres and they all know this is approved. This is the kind of thing that I would want to read and she's very successful at it, but it requires a lot of discipline to say no to anything that wouldn't appeal to a homeschool mom. And so that audience focus is harder to pull off. That's exactly right. I try to tell people as well that it, just because you're deciding who that audience is or who that genre is and what your career path is today, just because you're making that decision today doesn't mean you can't expand that down the road or add to it down the road. It does mean that you can't do it all today. And we need to make a decision on what we're going to be about, who we're going after, the genre we're focused in, and, and stick to it and build up enough credibility, enough trust to the point where you might have the option to add to that at some point. A good example of this is Benjamin Franklin. He was the second or third most successful author of the 1700s. He did, his Poor Richard's Almanac sold zillions of copies. They still make them today. Not written by him, but <laughs> very, very successful author. And you're like, but Benjamin Franklin, he was an author and he was a scientist and he was a diplomat and he was a politician and he was a publisher. And it's true. He was all of those things, but he wasn't all of those things at the same time. Mm. If you read his autobiography, he was all in on whatever he did at the time that he was doing it. So when he was a printer, he was all in on being a printer. When he was a scientist, he had hired somebody to run his printing business and he was doing science full time. When he was a diplomat, he was in France doing <laughs> diplomacy <laughs> and he was you know, not doing any of the other things. And just because you're focusing in this season of your life doesn't mean you can't do something else later. And you have freedom as you grow older to to move from one genre to another. You'll see authors do this where early in their career, they're writing a certain kind of book and they shift their reputation to do another kind of book. And that is much more effective than trying to do all of it all at the same time. Because if you try to do it all at the same time, you don't have the focus that you need to do any of it good enough to be successful. You know, Andy Andrews is famous for saying, I have a decided heart. And to decide what it is that I'm doing, what I'm focused on, and to go after it. And to, in doing that, 
intentionally decide to not do all of the other things that I could be doing. But I have a decided heart and I'm going to move forward in this direction. I'm going to make as much progress as I can and then eventually evaluate and decide if I want to keep going or if I want to do something different. So how do you do that evaluation? How do you find out if your brand is resonating with your audience? How do you know if you have a good brand or a good reputation? You either immediately know how you want to gauge your brand or you're sitting there saying, yeah, I have no idea how to do that. Well, if you're in the I have no idea category, I tell people that if you don't know where to start, pick the thing that you want to start with and try it for the period of time that you think you'll need to know if it's going to work. So start attaching specific timelines and then metrics as well. And then set up a 90-day alarm for you to revisit the progress that you've made in between those 90-day stretches and say, did this work? And if so, let's double down on it. And if it didn't work to the level that you wanted, then let's reevaluate. So for an example of that would be like trying to grow your email list. You're at zero and you're like, I'm going to give myself 90 days to get 100 subscribers doing this sort of thing. And we'll see if we can get 100 subscribers. You know, a subscriber day, it's not a lot, but it is more than what you'll get doing nothing. And so you need to have some resonance. And if you already have a bunch of subscribers, obviously you'd set a different timeline. The one thing I would recommend for those of you who are farther along, we're talking about how to measure your brand and see if it's working, is to read your reviews, specifically the two and three star reviews. One star reviews typically come from somebody who wasn't your target reader. And that's not that helpful. <laughs> and actually, they help you sell more books often because people are like, well, I'm not like him, so I want to buy the book. But three-star reviews often will tell you the expectations that the readers have. And if you look at your re reviews and realize that people don't care about you, and they don't care about your book, and when they're writing your review, they're not writing it about your book or about you. They're writing it about themselves. I did some word analysis on the reviews of my book, and the most common word was the word I, right? People are describing themselves in their reviews. And once you realize that, you can read a review without feeling judged and you can see it as the wonderfully accurate research that it is. And people who've spent money to buy your book and then they're telling you about themselves. And as you better get to know what their expectations are and what they're wanting, it helps you to better thrill them with your subsequent books. If you are able to, when you go into to do that market research, to read those reviews, if you are able to take off your author creative personal hat and put on your business hat. If you're able to, to separate yourself just for a minute and just look at it from a brand standpoint, as though that reviewer was talking about a business or a brand, if you're able to read it with those eyes, then I feel like you're able to learn and see a lot more clearly what the audience is seeing, because at some point uh, it's about them. And I would say from the beginning, it's about them, <laughs> but uh, at some point it's about their opinion matters. Now, I know for some of you, the idea of reading reviews is just psychologically so painful and so fraught. That's a complete non-starter. So here's a hack that you can use to get this information from your reviews without having to dive into the reviews. Because the other thing is you jump in, you read all these five-star reviews, and you're like, I really am amazing. <laughs> and that, that can be its own poison. You fly too close to the sun. So team up with another author who's similar to you, you're good friends with, or, and you're at the same place in your publishing journey. And say, I will read your reviews and give you a report of what I've learned about your brand. And you do the same for me. And that way you can act as a filter for each other and be like, I'll read your reviews. Here are the common themes that I'm seeing. Here's the common complaints that I'm seeing. Then they'll do the same for you. And that way you get the data 
from your reviews without having to go through the emotional journey of the dark night of the soul of actually reading the reviews. That's a great idea. That can be really a safe way, I think, to, to go on that journey. I've worked with several authors who absolutely refuse to go read the reviews out of pure terror for the one stars. The, the five stars don't mean anything to them. It's, the, it's that dreaded one star that shows up that will just totally derail them. But I like your approach there. That's a good idea. And just realize one stars aren't that helpful but they are helpful at selling books. This was a big discovery in the early 90s when Amazon first launched Amazon.com. Because when they put star ratings on products, it was incredibly controversial. <laughs> no brand wanted to have star ratings. And the classic example that Amazon gave in the late 90s to defend it, one, they shared a lot of research showing that products with one-star reviews sold more products on their platform than products without one-star reviews. So you really have to earn your first one-star review because it actually has a positive impact on your overall sales. Because if all of the reviews are five stars, people don't believe the reviews. Yep. It, it loses all credibility. But once there's a mix, especially once there's at least one one-star review, it validates all of the five-star reviews. But the other example they said is if you're getting one-star reviews for your oven because it's melting when it goes past 450 degrees, you don't have a review problem. You have a product problem. <laughs> <laughs> and better to know it so that you can go to the factory and fix the oven than to just hide it. Because while you may not be reading your reviews, you know who is reading your reviews? Your potential readers. <laughs> they are reading their, those reviews and they're using them to make decisions about you and about your reputation and about your book. That's wise counsel. So for somebody who's established with a well-established brand, you're working with Jerry Jenkins. He sold, I don't know, probably about a billion dollars worth of books, <laughs> plus or minus 100 million. Gross, obviously. There's a lot of pigs eating at the trough. But how do you coach somebody like that with their brand? Because Jerry's he's writing a new book all the time. How do you help somebody who's more established with their brand grow and hone their brand? One of the things that really separates Jerry from so many who have reached something close to that level is he understands that his gifting is really in two areas. It's to write books and it's to teach writing and anything else outside of that. He'd be the first to tell you is not in his wheelhouse. And so he has intentionally sought out experts in other areas and surrounded himself with people who have skills that he doesn't. And he has empowered us, me and my team to do what we do for him online. Now, the thing that I look for, and I'm sure you do as well, uh, Thomas, is is when I'm working with a new author, one of the key things that I'm looking for is that coachable factor. Is the person coachable? Are they willing to listen to advice? I am not a best-selling novelist. I'm also not a best-selling nonfiction writer. I do have a track record of helping novelists and uh, nonfiction authors sell a lot of books. And so when I'm interviewing people or considering a new brand, it's not that they have to defer to every single thing that I say, but it is a willingness to have a conversation and to allow each other to, to lean into expertise areas and just be coachable. Yeah, once you're successful, you tend to have money. And, and once you're really successful, you, you suddenly have a lot of money. And the question then comes, what do I do with this money that I now have? And there's a lot of things that you can do with it. But one key thing that if you want to continue being successful, a really good place to start with that money is to start hiring experts who have strengths where you have weaknesses. So if you are weak at taxes, 
and bookkeeping. <laughs> Once you have money, guess what? You can hire somebody where that is their job. <laughs> they, they went to school to study how to do that, and they can take that off your plate. And what ends up happening is you're able to prune or delegate more and more of the things that are in your weaknesses zone and spend more time in your strength zone, which then le- helps you find more success. And this is really challenging for somebody who comes from a worldview of, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself. Mm. Or we don't hire people to help us. We we do it ourselves. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is a useful worldview if you don't have any money. (laughs) But (laughs) once you do have money, it's a hurtful worldview, not just for yourself, because you're relying on your weaknesses rather than relying on your strengths. But it's also hurtful for all of the people you could be benefiting with your money, right? That accountant that you hired now has money from the job that you gave him, right? He's better off. That web designer who is, you know, taking the web work off of your plate now has a job with your money, right? They're being benefited and you're being benefited. You're not doing something bad by creating a job. You're doing something good by creating a job. And that I find for a lot of authors when they first taste that success is a worldview shift because often they feel guilty hiring somebody to clean their house. It's like, no, if I'm a good mother, I should clean my own house. Like, if you're writing best-selling books, you need to create a job for somebody to clean your house, and you need to keep writing best-selling books. <laughs> That's exactly right. So go create more space, more margin in your life to go do what only you can do. And that's applicable in a lot of different settings, but what is it that only you can bring to the table? And the goal should then become, okay, well, what else do I need to do to offload some of these other things that other people could be doing so that I am operating in my highest and best most often. So walk us through your process at Leverage Creative Group. You help authors with building their brands. What does that look like? Somebody comes to you wanting brand help. What is it that you do for them? But what we do is we don't charge anything. And I know everybody's saying, oh, there's got to be some catch. Well, we don't, just like a traditional publishing company doesn't charge uh, the author anything. What we do is we run the online presence, build the site, build the products, build the audience, do the marketing, the launch, the fulfillment, the customer service, all of those things. And then we turn around with the money that comes in and pay the author a royalty on what we've created for them. So we're trying to duplicate the book publishing model in this online course space. Now we're still obviously involved with authors and their books. We help them market those. But the core of our business is online courses, online products, digital experiences with the brand expert themselves. And so you're looking for authors who already have a well-established email list, a well-established reputation, because this isn't making authors famous. What you do is you help authors who are already famous better monetize that following that they already have. Yeah, for sure. Or So if they have a, a following that that exists, maybe has 10,000 people on your email list, but you believe that it should be 50,000 and you don't know how to get it to that next level. That's where our company could really come alongside and help get uh, the word out to many more people. And we'll have a link to that leveragecreativegroup.com if you're curious uh, to learn more. They have a really useful blog with a bunch of valuable blog posts. They're not just puff. I I was impressed (laughs) going through your blog. I'm like, hey, there's some actual, there's some good substance here, especially on Branding. Uh, But before we go, do you have any tips or encouragement? Oh, the encouragement. Let me focus on that because I feel like we're bombarded with tips all day long. So my encouragement to you is keep going. The temptation is to 
slack off or to even quit or to use excuses and to slow down. And regret is not going to be fun if you don't keep moving. You're not going to enjoy that feeling of what if. I know it can be overwhelming and time consuming and probably really frustrating at times, but it's worth it, especially if you feel like you're supposed to be doing it. So my encouragement there is to just keep going. It takes time to build a reputation. As Andy Crouch said, the only thing you can do with Rome in a day is burn it. <laughs> you can't build Rome in a day, but you can burn Rome in a day. And so be true to who you are. Be true to the promises that you've made your audience and then be persistent because it does take time and it does start to feed on itself. As you are persistent, it gets easier as that flywheel starts to spin. That's great advice. And that's it's exactly what you said. Trust is the same way. You can't build it up immediately, but you can destroy it immediately. <laughs> if you're wanting more help with branding, I have a couple of courses that each have a module that takes you step by step into building an author brand. The first is Obscure No More. This is a course all about building your platform and becoming more noteworthy as more people know who you are, which helps you grow a bigger brand, but it also has a specific module on branding that will help you grow a better brand. The other course is Book Launch Blueprint, which we only do once a year and is now open for registration. I'll talk more about this later, but we've just opened it up for registration for 2022. The course will be starting in April 2022, and a whole day of the Book Launch Blueprint is also devoted to helping you step-by-step -step build a bigger, better brand. So both of those courses can help if you're wanting more help on building a brand. Our featured patron today is C.L.R. Peterson, author of Lucia's Renaissance, Heresy is Fatal in Late Renaissance Italy. So only a suicidal zealot would so much as whisper the name Martin Luther. But after Luther's idea is ignite a young girl's faith, she must choose, abandon her beliefs, or risk her life in the turbulent world of late 16th century Italy. C.L.R. Peterson, thank you so much for being a patron of the novel marketing podcast. What a great uh, renaissance thing to do. Like the Medici's of old, you are supporting this podcast and I really appreciate it. And if you would like to become a patron, if you too would like to be a Medici, but on a much smaller scale and help uh, keep the Novel Marketing Podcast on the air, just go to novelmarketing.com slash patron. And if you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to help the show, you can just leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podchaser. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, blog post by Shauna Lettler, and the producer was Lori Christine. I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr., your host. And to find that blog post version of this episode, visit authormedia.com. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.